Psalm 72 this morning. I haven't got the number actually of the, in the church Bible, but if you have a Bible and you open it up in the middle, you'll likely end up in the Psalms, and they're in numerical order, so if you go to 72, uh, you'll find it, and that's where we're going to be. Psalm 72. Well, some of you may be really excited to know that in 276 days' time, we're having a general election. I'm sure that you're all really uh, pumped up about that. Uh, I can't say I'm overly excited at this particular moment. But whenever there's a general election, uh, political parties always produce an election manifesto, which hardly anyone really ever reads, if they're honest. Some of them are quite amusing. For example, I remember in the 2005 election, the Monster Raving Looney Party had a quite amusing manifesto where they said that they were going to allow people to ride over roundabouts and they were going to scrap the euro and invite everyone to join the pound, which I thought was quite actually a good policy, but there you go. But um, manifestos are policies that a particular party are going to introduce if they are elected into government. Now, cynics would say that they are not worth the paper that they are written on because most of what is said is intended to get votes and not be implemented at all. And there's a lot of people that have that kind of a view. But in this psalm, we see the manifesto of the Messiah, the manifesto of a king. And Jesus is really all that he is promised to be. But in order to understand this psalm, we have to go back a bit further than the time of Jesus. You see, from the beginning of time, since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, there has been a promise. Because in Genesis 3, we read how Adam and Eve were banished from God's presence because of sin. Sin cannot be in the presence of God, so they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden. But in that chapter, in verse 15, we read of the promise of one who would come and make an end of sin, crushing the head of the serpent who is Satan. And all through the Old Testament, we are looking for this one who is going to crush the head of the serpent. And each time we see somebody who could be that one, we see them fail again and again. And throughout the Old Testament, God reveals more and more about what this serpent crusher would be like. So Abraham, for example, was told that he was to be a father of many nations. Abraham was told that he would have a special place to dwell with God's people. And Abraham was told that through his seed, there would be blessing for all the nations on the earth. And there are many other uh, promises about uh, what was going to come through this Messiah. But of all the people in the Old Testament, for a time in his life, a case could be made for King Solomon to be the one. King Solomon. King Solomon was the king that had the most land that was promised to Abraham. King Solomon was one who had many people under his rule. King Solomon was a king that blessed other nations. Nations like the Queen of Sheba would come to him to hear of his wisdom. 
But we, we see in King Solomon's life even, he was not that one. He was not the perfect king. We know from chapter 11 of 1 Kings that King Solomon had many wives. He followed after other gods and he died. He was not the king written of in this chapter. But this psalm is written by Solomon's father, King David. And it's written in anticipation of King Solomon's reign. And in a sense, this has three levels. We see uh, what all kings or rulers should be like, but aren't. We see what Solomon should be like, but only was a little bit. But ultimately, we see the manifesto of the Messiah. This is exactly what King Jesus is like. And if any one of these three levels is to be uh, looked at, verse 1 applies to them all. If we're going to be a good king or leader in any walk of life, if King Solomon was to be a good king, and what we saw with Jesus, verse 1 applies. It says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. To endow means to provide, to give, or to bestow. And it is God who endows the king and God who endows us with justice. The king was the supreme court in the land and he needed justice in making right decisions. And it's God who gave the king, especially King Solomon, the justice, the wisdom that he had. And if we're going to do what is right, we need God to endow us with his justice. And it also talks about endowing the royal son with righteousness. And righteousness too comes from God. Now Solomon was known for his wisdom and justice, but ultimately it was fulfilled by Jesus, the perfect king. And Jesus is the king that gives us his righteousness. When he died on the cross, he paid for our sin and credited us with his righteousness. So truly, justice and righteousness comes from God. And if the king, if the king has God endowing him, then there is hope for his reign. And I think the first thing we see in the reign of the king is the hope of his reign in verses 1 to 7. You know, in this first section of the psalm, in, in the new NIV, it uses the word may at the beginning of almost every verse. So may he judge, may the mountains bring prosperity, may he defend. And may is a word of hope, isn't it? The word may. So if, if you pray to God, you, you say, Lord, or, or even ask each other, we say, please, may I. We, we, it's a word of hope, something we're desiring to receive. Well, what hopes did David have for Solomon's reign? Well, first of all, we see the hope of justice in verse 2. May he judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted ones with justice. In 1 Kings 3, we read how Solomon asked God for wisdom. God told him he could have anything that he wanted. And Solomon didn't ask for riches or power. 
he asked for wisdom. As it happened, God said because he's asked for wisdom, he received all those other things as well. And in that same chapter, Solomon is shown to be a wise king by judging wisely between two women who were fighting over whose baby it was. Solomon was the one who wrote the book, or the majority of the book of Proverbs, a whole book on wisdom. David here was asking for righteous judgment and justice for the afflicted ones, those who suffer for righteousness. Now, the Bible isn't altogether clear how Solomon did this, but when we look at Jesus, who comes out of Solomon's shadow, we see that he is the king who is greater than Solomon. Isaiah writes about Jesus in chapter 11 of his book with these words in verses 4 and 5. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash around his waist. And in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Bible, Solomon is is known as a type of Christ. He's someone that pictures part of what Jesus would be. And Jesus said that one greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is the substance. Solomon is the shadow. But for us, this, the, the full kingdom blessing talked about in Isaiah is not here just yet. Because we do suffer, don't we, now uh, for what is right. All over the world, Christians are persecuted for righteousness. But one day, this hope that David talks about will be very real. God's people will have justice. If you have suffered because of your following Jesus, the Bible promises that there will be justice from King Jesus. In one sense, we have that justice now because we are forgiven of our sins because Jesus was punished on our behalf. We are justified. But there is a sense that there is a not yet because one day we'll be in a place where there'll be perfect justice, where there'll be no suffering for righteousness at all. So we see the hope of justice, but secondly we see the hope of peace and prosperity. Look at verses 3 and 4. May the mountains bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. May he defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. May he crush the oppressor. Well, mountains are not known for their crops. When you go up on top of a mountain, you don't find, uh, you know, fruit and all those kind of things. Hills are a little lower than mountains. So from the tops of the mountains, it says here, to the little hills, there will be abundance. May abundance reign. And the word prosperity here can also be translated peace. It's a time of abundance that comes through peace and the blessings of righteousness. Again, there is a concern here for the needy and afflicted, where a good king defends them, saves them, crushes oppression. Now Solomon's reign was certainly 
a time of peace and a time of prosperity. The Bible tells us that Solomon had so much gold that silver was worthless. Now, I have um, a stepfather that whenever he wants something, he instantly goes out and buys it. And I always struggle to know what to get him for his birthday. But reading uh, in 1 Kings about Solomon, I found the answer. Because Solomon was a man that had everything. And it says that people bought him apes and peacocks. So I figure for his birthday one year, I'll get him an ape or a peacock because he seems to be a man that has everything. But that Solomon had so much that people would bring him apes and peacocks. But King Solomon's kingdom ended and God's people were again under oppression from other empires. I think there is a special concern here that we are supposed to have for the poor and needy that we need to take more responsibility for rather than just ignoring it. But the prosperity that Jesus offers is not money. It is eternal peace and prosperity of the gospel. And this is people's greatest need that we need to share. Jesus is the king that defends the afflicted ones, who saves us from our biggest need, that of rescue from the penalty of sin. And he crushes the great oppressor, Satan. So there is the hope of peace and prosperity that was partly there with Solomon, but can only really come through King Jesus. Thirdly, we see the hope of endurance in verse 5. May he endure as long as the sun, as long as the moon through all generations. It looked for a while as though Solomon's was a kingdom that would never end because it was so prosperous. But when I was first a believer, uh, I had no uh, Bible readings at home. I, I knew nothing. And I decided to read through the Bible. And when I got to King Solomon... I believe that this guy was the business. This guy was amazing. Because you get uh, from chapter 3 up to the end of chapter 10, nothing but good things about Solomon. And I, I didn't know the story. And then I came to chapter 11, and I was devastated. Because chapter 11, you read in the first verse, but Solomon had many wives. And then in the last verse of that chapter, you read of his death. So in the chapter you read of his sin, you read of his death. And Solomon was a great king in a way. But in this one chapter we read of his sin, of his death, of his judgment. And he died. And his kingdom was split into two. And his kingdom ended. His people were taken into captivity. Solomon's kingdom did not endure as long as the sun or as long as the moon through all generations. But what about King Jesus? Well, just before he was born, the angel angel announced, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. Jesus is the king who reigns forever. He reigns forever. And finally, we see the hope of righteousness flourishing in verses 6 and 7. May he be like rain falling on a mown field, like showers watering the earth, In his days may the righteous flourish and prosperity abound till the moon is no more. When a field is mown and water comes, the grass appears to grow back thicker even than before. It certainly happens in my garden. Uh, It grows back extremely quick and I have to continually mow it every week. 
But the showers uh, watering the earth here make what is hard and dry moist and fruitful. So it's a good thing that it grows back. But what, what is grown in this field? Well, verse 7 tells us righteousness flourishes and prosperity abounds. So like the grass keeps growing back, so the righteousness keeps on coming. And a good king allows what is right to flourish. And this then brings peace and prosperity. And although Solomon did have this to an extent, because his kingdom was, was at peace, we wait for a day where righteousness flourishes everywhere, rather than evil seeming to have the victory. Because you just have to turn on the TV, don't you, just to see any news report. And it appears, doesn't it, that evil seems to be having some kind of victory. But Jesus' kingdom brings righteousness spiritually now, so we are given righteousness, and we should therefore live lives, that out, out, the outflowing of that should be lives of righteousness. But one day in a new heaven and a new earth, Righteousness will flourish permanently and forever, and evil will be no more. So this is the hope, the hope of the reign of the Messiah. And we see here the manifesto of the Messiah. Justice, peace, prosperity, endurance, flourishing righteousness. I'm sure all of you know what, it, what it's like to hope for something amazing and then, then be let down in some way. I have eaten many a meal in many a restaurant that I have gone to and hoped it would be really nice only for it to be horrible. I've watched England play on numerous occasions at various sports, hoping they're going to be really good and then they let you down almost every time. Well, they've done well in the Commonwealth Games, haven't they? I've watched many a movie that I think is going to be really good but it ends up just being a load of rubbish. In fact, just the other week I was really excited to go on a bike ride um, because I, it was, I was going to play golf and I wanted to go on my bike and I was really excited because I've not ri- driven, ridden this far for a long time, only for it to be thundering and lightning, so I couldn't go. I was really disappointed. We hope for lots of things, don't we? And we get let down. But how often, though, do we put our hopes on other people only to be what God can be? David had high hopes for Solomon. But ultimately, they were not fully met in him. We hope for other people to be just, only to be treated unfairly by them. We hope for them to bring us peace. Sometimes we hope for them to bring us prosperity in our lives. But often they only bring us strife. And when we are young, especially, we expect people just to live forever, don't we? We don't even think about death. But we realise that that is not the case. And people don't last forever either. We expect people to get great things right, but they end up getting them wrong. Now it's right that we have a good and a lasting and a right relationship with people. It's right that we trust people. And it's right that we can rely on each other. But we can never be what only God can be. And people at some stage will always let us down. So we cannot live for them. We cannot live our lives chasing other people's approval. We cannot go to people expecting help or even counsel and expecting them to be the ones to change our hearts. We cannot 
hold back telling people the truth because we don't want to upset them. We cannot expect marriage to fulfill all of our life ambitions. Our spouse cannot be what only God can be. We cannot uh, think that we can only be uh, satisfied in life if we are married. We can really only be satisfied in God. But when we read of King Jesus, this wonderful king, we will never be disappointed with him. He is exactly as is described here. We can trust him completely to change our hearts because he will do so. We can trust him completely to bring us peace because he does so. We can trust him to act justly because he always does. Jesus never lets us down. Jesus is exactly as he has promised to be. And it is to him who we must place our hope in. There is hope for the way this king will reign, but David also has high hopes for the extent of his reign. And that's what we see secondly in verses 8 to 11, the extent of his reign. Verses 8 to 11 says, May he rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. May the desert tribes bow before him, and his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Well, we see two different descriptions here of the extent of his reign. First of all, we see the physical part of it. The physical part is from sea to sea. Now, Solomon's kingdom was from the Red Sea to the Mediterranean Sea. But it wasn't from the rivers the river to the ends of the earth. When the Bible here talks about the river, um, it's likely talking about the Euphrates. But Solomon's kingdom, although larger than David's and larger than the kingdom physically of Israel ever was, never filled the whole earth. But the reign of the Messiah is different. Right now, Jesus reigns over the whole earth. He is ruling from heaven, And sometimes we can get the impression, can't we, that he's not really in charge. Because we live in a world where so much seems to go wrong that we think that God isn't reigning. We think that maybe that'll come later. But I read a good quote, um, which I'm going to put up on the screen. It says, Wicked men may not think they are serving God's purposes, but they are serving his purposes all the same, even by the most wicked of their acts. Jesus is reigning and ruling now. Even though when we turn on the TV, it looks like everything is going wrong, Jesus is ruling and reigning and everybody serves the purpose of God. Now, that's hard to understand. That's not to say God is the author of the evil acts, but nothing happens that God thinks, oh, I didn't mean that to happen. Or I didn't realize that was going to go on. God is ruling and reigning and uses everything for his glory. Nothing goes on that is outside the reign of Christ. But in a physical sense, he's coming back. And in a physical sense, he's going to bring about a new creation. The Bible talks about a new heaven and a new earth where actually it says there is no sea. 
There is no separation. There is no, uh, nothing that, it, that is wrong. He will rule physically where everything will be righteous and everything will be good. So he will reign physically later, but spiritually, God reigns now. But as well as the physical land, the psalmist writes of the personal extent of his reign. So we see the physical part, but also the personal part. How people will worship him. It says desert tribes. Desert tribes are distant people. They come and bow before him. Enemies, it says, lick the dust. That's a way of saying that they'll be on the floor, heads down, bowing before the king. Kings of Tarshish, uh, of distant shores... And of Sheba and Seba present gifts to him. Now Tarshish um, is supposed to be in, uh, in a port in Spain. And at this time, to these writers, that was really the end of the world. And distant shores could be the islands around there. But it was as, what he's saying is it's as far as the world was on the west side, people will come and worship him. And Sheba was in southeast Arabia. And you may know of the story of the queen of Sheba. She was the one who came uh, seeking out Solomon's wisdom and bringing him gifts of gold. And Seba, which sounds a bit like Sheba, but it's a different place, is in Africa in the middle of the Nile. So it's saying that all over the world, all over, people are going to come and bow down and worship this king. Now because the queen of Sheba came to Solomon... Uh, he partly fulfilled this. People came from outside of Israel to worship him. But only Jesus fulfills this properly. Solomon was but a shadow. Jesus is the substance. And the Bible says that all knees will bow before King Jesus in heaven and on earth and under the earth. This is fulfilled by Jesus. He reigns over the whole world and the whole world will bow before him. I remember when in our first home after we got married, we were tenants. We rented the house. And we wanted to decorate, but we could only decorate in the colours and styles that we had to agree in advance with the owner of the house. He owned the place, so we couldn't do anything in that place without the owner permitting it. And in a similar way, Jesus is the ruler of the world. He's the ultimate ruler of the whole earth and of our lives. And sometimes we are under the illusion that God isn't in control. As if God um, is asleep or something like that, or God doesn't care. But God is ruler over the world, but he's ruler over your life. And we can try and hold things back from God and keep it in our own little kingdom rather than acknowledging that it's part of God's kingdom. Nothing in this world, nothing in our lives, doesn't belong to God. We're just tenants, if you like. Uh, There was a Dutch statesman theologian called Abraham Kuyper, and this is what he said, uh, which I thought was a a really great uh, quote. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything is God's. And yet we 
try and keep back parts of our lives from being in the extent of his reign, don't we? We can keep our our, um, friendships out of God's kingdom. We can say, well, I'm not going to tell them about Jesus because I want to keep that friendship just non-Christian, if you like. We can keep our possessions and our finances from being used for God's glory and only be used for our own benefit and keep them out of God's kingdom. We can, we can keep our sins, if you like, not that we should bring sin into God's kingdom, but that we should forsake it for God's kingdom. And we can say, well, I'm going to keep that sin and, 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 and live for that rather than living for God's kingdom. When all of our life is under his rule and his reign and we should say, your will be done. All of what we are, all of what we have, Christ can claim mine because he is the sovereign God, the ruler over all things. Everything we have, our families, our homes, our careers, our health, everything, Christ claims that is mine. And giving all to Christ is just part of what being in his kingdom is all about. But is it worth it? Is it worth following Jesus as our king? Well, when we are in his kingdom, we come to realize, finally, the blessings of his reign. Let's read along verses 12 to 17. We're going to end at 17. Um, I'll explain why a bit later. It says, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold from Sheba be given him. May people ever pray for him and bless him all day long. May grain abound throughout the land. On the tops of the hills may it sway. May the crops flourish like Lebanon and thrive like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him. And they will call him blessed. It ends there. Um, the, the psalm actually ends there. And verses 18 down to 20 are just the conclusion of a group of psalms written. So we're not going to focus on verses 18 to 20, partly because of time as well. But we'll end at 17. But notice the change here from the may he in the first section to the he will in this section. All the hopes of the psalmist come to pass in the reign of the Messiah. And if he is our king, we too will come to live under the blessing of his reign. And there are two main blessings that are explained here. It's the blessing of salvation and the blessing of eternal prosperity. Of salvation and eternal prosperity. And if you remember back to verse 4, we read about the hope for justice And in verses 12 to 14, we see how that is ultimately fulfilled in salvation. Verse 4 asks the king to defend the afflicted and save the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. And in the blessing of the king's reign, we see the needy and afflicted are delivered. The weak have pity on them. The needy are saved from death. There is rescue from oppression 
and violence. And this can only be talking about King Jesus. Our biggest need is to be rescued from the power of sin and death. Without Christ, we are on our way to a lost eternity. Our lives are enslaved by our own evil desires and the impacts of the evil around us. We are those who are needy and afflicted. We are those who are weak and oppressed spiritually. And King Jesus lifts us out of this place and places us in his kingdom where we are free from the penalty of sin. We are free to live lives that he designed us to live, lives for his glory. What a blessing to be part of the kingdom of God. It's a blessing to be under King Jesus. We are free from the penalty of sin. We are free to live lives for his glory. And why does he rescue us? Why does he give us this? Well, verse 14 says, Our blood is precious in his sight. How lovely is that? He rescues us because we don't deserve it. He rescues us from our sin because our blood, our life is precious in his sight. Did you realize that you are precious in God's sight? And he loved you enough to give his precious blood to redeem you to bring you into his kingdom. You are precious in God's sight. Now there is a sense that this also applies to those who now are poor, weak and oppressed in very physical ways. Ways that it's hard for us in our Western comfort, I guess, to understand. But when Jesus returns... How sweet is his kingdom going to be for those people who have lived in this way? He truly is a king who blesses those in his kingdom. And when salvation comes, we have peace and we have prosperity, spiritually speaking, forever. Verses 15 to 17, um, again in the New NIV, go back to using that word may. But it's rather than may it be, The sense here is, may it continue. So when verse 15 says, long may he live, it's not saying, may he live a long, I hope he lives a long time. It's saying, may he continue to live. May he live forever. And Jesus does. He is risen and ascended, and he lives forevermore. The hope, there was a hope for peace and prosperity. It says, may gold from Sheba be given to him, which of course For Solomon, it was from the Queen of Sheba. And at the end of verse verse 15, people, it says, always pray for him and bless him all day long. Now, of course, we should pray for our rulers. All kings need us to pray for them, but how do we pray for Jesus? If this is applied to the Messiah, how do we pray for him? Well, We pray, as we sung in the children's song, we pray your kingdom come. We pray your will be done. We pray for him to return. We pray in praise of his name. 
That's how we pray for King Jesus. And the prosperity is pictured more in verse 16. It says about grain. Well, the grain is the, is the seed of the gospel abounding throughout the world, even on the tops of the hills, which is not a usual place for crops to grow. It mentions Lebanon, which was famous for its wood, which was thick and strong. It talks about grass, which is plentiful. This is an abundant harvest. And if we apply this to the gospel, Jesus said in Matthew that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest fields. And of course, we we pray that, don't we, that God would send workers into the harvest fields that are, are ripe for harvest. But a handful of disciples sowed a seed of the gospel, which has produced a huge crop and is still growing even today. Solomon had a prosperous land, but King Jesus has a kingdom that is going on and on and growing and growing and growing forever and ever. And the final blessing of his reign is in the final passage this morning, uh, verse of our passage this morning in verse 17. And this can only apply to King Jesus. It says, may his name endure forever. May it continue as long as the sun. Then all nations will be blessed through him and they will call him blessed. This is a fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12. He was promised a nation in a land that would bless the whole world and King Jesus is the one who is that blessing to all nations. And just one final thing. Notice at the beginning um, of verse 12, it says the word for. The word for is another way of saying because. Because of what's gone on before, because of that great hope, he has this kind of dominion, one that covers the whole earth. Because he is this kind of king, he bestows this kind of blessing. Jesus is that king who fulfills all our hopes. And he pours out abundant blessings on those that are part of his kingdom. And there is from every tribe, tongue, and nation, the Lord is calling out a kingdom for himself that will endure forever. What a blessing to be a part of the kingdom of God. And I wonder this morning, are you part of that kingdom? Because there's an invitation, would you come? Would you come and be part of the kingdom of God? Would you accept the invite from King Jesus to come to him and receive the blessings of his kingdom? And for those of us here this morning that are perhaps, maybe you're here discouraged, maybe you're worn down, just meditate on these words and remember the wonderful king that we have and the amazing future that he has for you. It's a blessing to be a part of the kingdom of God. And I pray that you know that blessing, that you're part of that kingdom, and that you thank God for King Jesus, who fulfills all our hopes, and will continue to do so for all eternity. Well, we're going to sing our final song which is kind of an invite to 
his kingdom. Come people of the risen king. And in the chorus we sing rejoice. Let every heart rejoice. It's a great thing, isn't it, to be part of the kingdom of God. Let's stand together as we sing.